Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Please listen carefully. What is communication? The act of taking a thought from my head and putting it into your essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Usually what I have in my head to the outside world draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. I think it's the ability to share your innermost feelings and thoughts with others. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speed Science Episode 71, proud member of the Exceptional Podcast Network, live for the first segment right here on Facebook, and as always, able to be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, check out our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, which dir- directly links you to our friends over at the XPN Network. Also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Production, or you can give us a phone call or a text, 614 614- 681-1798 or speechscience at gmail.com. It's Matt Hot, joined as always by Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. Hi, Michelle. And Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Hi, Michael. How are things going in our therapy realms? Michelle, it sounds like you finally got the dreaded sniffles I fought for the last three weeks. I know. If you catch my pile of tissues that are off screen <laughs> over here. I'm trying not to blow my nose while we're live. Oh, uh, don't do that. At least mute it and turn the camera away from you. <laughs> right, so you don't watch me. How is life with baby speech science and burgeoning new Kentucky therapy license? I, um, I'm actually up for the week in Ohio. Go figure. I know I make it really hard to keep track of me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm up, I'm up in Ohio for the week visiting family and um, baby speech science is doing great. He's crawling all over the place now, causing trouble. He discovered the little door stopper springs recently. <laughs> and it's his favorite thing to crawl for. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you still need a two-year-old to uh, trial all your safety locks, I will give you mine for the weekend. You can Hey, sounds good. I keep telling you to come down to Kentucky. There we go. Michael <laughs> McLeod, how are things out in... I keep wanting to say West Philadelphia, but I don't actually know what part of Philly you are in. Definitely not in West Philadelphia. <laughs> I feel like I'm having deja vu. We've had this conversation before. <laughs> Maybe it's a conversation we've had every week. What part of Philly are you in? I am definitely not in West Philadelphia. I live basically in Center City, pretty much north of Center City, in a little area called Fairmount Francisville. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a newer area of the city. Um, but yeah, and my clinic is in the suburbs out west of the city. I'm in a little, little town called Media, Media PA, 
Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so that's so that's where my clinic is. That, that that's where I spend most of my time, and it's where I do most of my work there. Uh, but yeah, things have been great. I've been, it's been very very busy. I've been traveling down to Maryland and doing a lot of work down there, uh, doing lots of traveling, and things are just getting real busy at the clinic. I think this is really uh, this is really crunch time. And Mike, you're you're licensed in a couple different states, right? Yes, in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. There. Are you really? Yep. Wow. Look at you. He lives Sir. in that borderland. Uh, good point. I, I live yeah. in borderland, and I'm not licensed in Indiana or Kentucky. Come on, Matt. <laughs> Join the multi-license land over here. It'll happen. It'll happen. Well, we want to hear from you, and we always tell you to give us a call or text us 614-681-1798. And that is exactly what Nikki did. Nikki is a first-year grad student. She says that she loves us. We love you too, Nikki. Um, also, she says that uh, kombucha, GT's brand, I don't know what that is, uh, is excellent, and it's an acquired taste, uh, especially helpful for vegans who have difficulty getting into probiotics. Look at that. So I'm telling there's you, live tasting with Matt. On the probiotic train. Hey, I will say this. I was, and I'll probably lose any vegan listeners we've ever had. I was vegan for 35 minutes in, in undergrad. <laughs> and honest to goodness true story what happened was uh enrolled religions class and and uh and dr conway class i believe at muskingum university uh she brought in people from PETA. they showed us how they make hamburger meat and my buddy and i said oh my gosh we can't eat animals anymore that's terrible so we left the class walked up to the dining hall the whole way talking about how we're going to start eating salads and what we can do to get rid of meat out of our diets. We opened the doors to the cafeteria and the smell of cooking steak for lunch with baked potatoes. And our first thought was, well, the cow's already dead. And that was the end of my veganism after 30, 35 minutes of walking from class uh, to cafeteria. Well, there's a tangent I didn't see coming. <laughs> <laughs> We also want you to interact on all of our social media, such as Instagram. Michael? The the Instagram account? I thought you had uh, somebody had wrote to us on Instagram. Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> I, thought we were, I thought we were mentioning that with, with something else. Oh, right? okay. We'll hold on to that. We are, we are radio professionals. Hold that yep. story. I guess. We'll hold that story. <laughs> Coming up today on this episode, we will be talking about burnout or as Z Dog MD called it, moral injury. We'll get into that. Also, we're talking about an unprecedented and significant step in the right direction for listening. We'll talk a little bit about that. Also, coming up on today's show, Michelle Wintering, you had a chance to sit down and talk to one of the VP for planning uh, candidates. Yes, Yvette Heider from Michigan. Um, so that's coming up later in this podcast, but she is uh, a great interview, and I hope you get to hear what she's all about. But to start off, coming out of the Asha Wire, this is an article from 2019, back in February. Uh, it's called The Unheard Female Voice. And as I have a tendency to dominate the show with my deep baritone male voice, I'll let Michelle lead us off in this one. Oh, goodness. Um, well, it's definitely a good read. I'm actually saving it so I can go back and reread it a little further but what was really interesting is talking about how women's voices are typically 
higher pitch and that can be perceived as youthfulness and being young, um, which is not always a bad thing, but research has shown that youthfulness associated with less dominance in women, but not in men. And then it also talks about speech pathologists working with basically how can speech pathologists support women to sound authoritative in certain ways without necessarily changing their vocal quality. And some of the research was really fascinating, talked about interruptions between male to female, female to female, female to male, and it's crazy different in uh, different studies they did, just interactions and meetings, measuring interruptions. I forget, I'll have to find the little stat for it in here. And then uh, that a lot of higher up, sorry, I'm going to sneeze, I think. <laughs> There's that cold <laughs> coming back on me. Uh, but you take Supreme Court justices. Uh, the female Supreme Court justices typically have lower, over the years, they've lowered their voices. Have they really? Yeah, that was mentioned in the article. I need to find it, but it's fascinating. And it's true. I mean, think about it. When we try to sound more authoritative, men and women both, we lower our voice. Huh. I guess that makes sense. I mean, I found this interesting because like I've had a couple transgender voice clients and talking about trying to either make the transitioning into female voice a little bit more, I don't want to call it passive, but a little bit less in your face. And then also trying to transition into the male voice, trying to get them to be more bombastic, uh, I love that there's research behind it. Uh, I thought it was interesting at the end. They actually talk about how uh, it's less more. It's less about the person speaking and more about trying to change the listeners around them to get more female voices to be heard. I found that to be uh, a little bit. Uh, the art of uh, the Jacoby says we're talking about a society wide change, and that does not take everybody making a, and that does take everybody making just a small amount of effort. I thought that was the most interesting part. And that's why I let you start off there, Michelle, was me wanting to say something, but not. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. I think it's the other part that stood out to me is where they said, um, let me find the interruptions in that study of how many times. Here you go. In a recent study published by the Journal of Language and Social Psychology, engaged 40 participants, 20 male, 20 female, three-minute conversations. During the discourse, women interrupted men just once on average, yet men interrupted women 2.6 times, and women also interrupted each other at a rate of 2.9 times. But what they noted about that, which was really interesting, is that women tend to get to that familiarity in a conversation, mm -hmm. more familiar interactions like you would with a friend quicker than men. And so that could contribute to them interrupting each other more often. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. It's Michael. interesting research. I want to kind of link, click all the link throughs on this article. I just wanted to make sure that you were finished, Michelle. Before I, <laughs> before I you guys are the best. Look at that. Is really We're learning, but yeah, this is this is really a, a very very well thought out and and quite long article compared to a, a lot of the ones you find uh, on the Asha Wire. And being on part of the SLP community on Facebook, you do see a lot of complaints and sometimes some some hate towards Asha. 
but they really do quite a great job with the ASHA leader and the ASHA wire and a lot of the articles they put out there. And obviously a lot of them are based on overall the, you know, autism and speech and language, things like that. And an article like this could really get lost in the shuffle, but with the, with the field being 97, 98% female, I think this is a fantastic article that many people can really learn from. And I, I speak about this all the time that what I've found is to be the, the best thing about being an SLP is how great and how wide the scope of practice is. I think it's amazing how all the different options that are out there and all the different populations you can work with. And I would assume that the smallest area within our scope of practice is the corporate world mm -hmm. and doing some of the corporate trainings. And I, I, I don't think there's really any people in the corporate area that think that go through a bad experience at work and think to themselves, hmm, I think, in, I think an SLP can help me with this. And this article is great advocacy for our field in this area and what an SLP can do with our training to help adults, successful, professional, educated adults in the corporate world, whether it be females or males working in this type of environment. So I think this is definitely a, an untapped resource for our field that could really help to expand us even, even larger. And I, I can see an SLP really helping someone and really benefiting someone what in this area, in this realm, uh, really using our expertise to really help them to progress in, in their careers. Uh, the author is Stephanie Watson. She's a health writer, editor based out of North Kingstown, Rhode Island. Uh, and Michael, I think you hit on a perfect note that a lot of times we settle into the idea of what disability can we fix? What deficit can we bridge? And I know I'm working in home health care and I work in schools. And those are usually areas where someone has had a skill and they've lost it or they don't have a skill and they're trying to gain it. I think Michael and Michelle, you guys probably are, are more likely to see situations like this where uh, a, a young professional wants to lose their vocal fry or they need coaching on be using more assertive language to not be spoken over, spoken over during board meetings. H have either one of you really done anything similar to this that's not necessarily deficit driven or delay driven? The the settings I've been in have all been insurance based, so it's not, you know, this is this is going to be outside of a mm -hmm. insurance claim or probably outside of a school setting too. It's a bit of a merge of voice and social pragmatic language, right? Right. You've got both. I, I was reading the article and it felt like a review of some speech science things. You know, like puberty causes the vocal folds to elongate and thicken <laughs> for for men, that kind of thing, but. Um, I don't know, Mike, have you, have you worked with anyone that's almost, I, I think it'd be great to be able to be almost a concierge SLP and work for consult with businesses and executives, but go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I, I've had a few uh, adults reach out to me. I believe the vast majority of them were from India. Uh, I think some of them found like my website or, or they heard about me from one of my presentations or a conference or something. And they reached out to me in, in hoping for accent reduction to help them in, in the workplace, things like that. But it never really came to fruition. I never ended up seeing any of them. It, it never followed through. But there, it, it, it's definitely been there. So just just the fact that they they thought to let me look for and my website is is 
very obviously a pediatric website. What is your website? Uh, GrowNowTherapy.com. Uh, so it's very clearly like a three to college age website. That's pretty much how it is. So for an adult to see that and think, hey, let me reach out and see if this person could help me, that just shows, you know, and, and we know as, as SLPs, some of the best, uh, some of the best clients we can have are the ones that are just incredibly highly motivated. And that's mm -hmm. so hard to find in the pediatric population because they're not fully aware of their deficits and they have a million other, million other things going on. Uh, but if you have an adult who, you know, wants, needs help in the corporate world, needs help with accent reduction, and they're highly motivated to improve, that could be some of the most engaging and, and fun therapy that you can have as a therapist. I know when I was going through my leveling courses uh, at Kent State University, um, I can't think of my professor's name, but I know she was Dr. Ann. She would work with newscasters on modifying their accent and getting the female newscasters to be more, I don't want to say believable, but more assertive, more reliable, someone you would believe presenting on the newscast. And I thought it was one of the most interesting ways to use therapy that was not what we were learning in class, which was articulation remediation or uh, language milestones. I just thought it was super interesting. And now, you know, that would be something that I would love to work with, but I don't know even know where to start to work with somebody like that. Yeah, there's a lot of outside courses like CEU courses and quote unquote certification courses for accent reduction. Uh, where you basically just get a certificate from who knows where uh, saying that you have experience in accent reduction and you're certified to coach accent reduction. Um, it's really just one of those money grabber kind of things mm, from, from, what I, from what I've seen. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's really one of those things where um, maybe if you're fresh out of grad school, you might be more, more prepared because you've, you, you've had a lot of that recent training that's a really, it's, it's a really individual, individualistic thing to who would be most prepared to, to do this kind of work. Uh, I would definitely need to do some research and some, some, uh, some work on my end before I was able to see this type of person. I think, uh, I love this idea of being a concierge consult. <laughs> it actually came up in one of the Facebook groups I'm in for speech pathology of people talking about connected, but not what we think as the, the more narrow area. Oh, well, speech is very broad, but right. traditional speech language therapy and um, that we almost need to market ourselves for some of those other populations. I love it. I, 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 I'm telling you, that is going to be how I retire. I'll become, that sounds like an awesome job. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I think this whole discussion on this article, we're all nervous about interrupting each other, even though our podcast <laughs> is much more familiar <laughs> conversation, cut people off, laugh in the middle of it kind of thing. We are doing so, really good at that though. I will admit that. 
We want to hear from you, though. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and that's where you can tell us, without anyone interrupting you, uh, your thoughts. You can email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or give us a phone call or text message, 614-681-1798. Or if you're a typer, not a talker, you can find us on Twitter at speechsciencepc, or hashtag us, hashtag us, speechscience, or... SS pod. Uh, thank you, Michael, for setting that one up. Yes, sir. Hashtag SS pod. SS pod. I love it. Uh, as I do the Jimmy Fallon double finger hashtag. Oh, um, yeah. Him and Justin Timberlake, right? Oh, our next article coming up out of Asha again. And this time talking about more, I guess, on the audiological side, but safe hearing and what they want to do is it's going to be referred to collectively as WHO-ITU H.870, the global standard on safe listening devices and systems, basically saying that they want devices to be equipped with a warning or some sort of label, uh, identifying that if you listen to 40 hours a week to volumes higher than 80 decibels, uh, it could cause uh, damage uh, to your hearing system. And, and I love this idea. Like I'm practically almost halfway deaf in my right ear from years on radio. And I used to listen to with the one headphone completely off on the right side and I couldn't hear as well. So I would crank it up and I'm pretty sure that I've ruined my hearing on that side. I think this is absolutely fantastic. I, I think nowadays you see headphones on just about everybody. Everybody has a phone and every phone comes with headphones. So yes. every, everybody has headphones. Everyone's listening to music at some point. It's not just when you're at the gym or going for a run like it was back when I was growing up. Now it's you're in the car with headphones. You're walking with headphones. You're at work with headphones. You're on your computer with headphones. And as technology increases to, to kind of have that privacy and to be one-on-one -on -one with, the, with the technology, having those headphones is beneficial. So having this disclaimer for what we know as, as clinicians is the science behind hearing. I think this is great. I'm, I'm on board. And 80 decibels, I'm pulling up the speech banana again. But <laughs> it's okay. not that, I mean, 80 decibels is not that loud. When you think uh, about it. I mean, it's decently loud for a sustained period, but, um, but you can get up there with even vacuuming or... True playing an instrument or a plane flying at 1000 feet <laughs> but it i you know we all should wear hearing protection more often i know a lot of concert venues and mm -hmm. sports venues now are handing out lending out for children under a certain age the sound canceling headphones um more and more places are doing that which i think is great yeah, I've seen that more often. Like, uh, like at the Super Bowl when like the game-winning quarterback brings his baby on stage. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. I've mm -hmm. seen the bait. Like uh, the baby will have like headphones. I've noticed. I've, I don't remember ever seeing that in the past, but I think the, the past couple of years I've seen babies on the field uh, with headphones. Yep, in sporting events that like uh, my friend's kid at a hockey game and he's mm -hmm. got a three-year-old and he's got the the headphones on. I used to never wear hearing protection because I thought it was the uncoolest thing in the world. 
and my son's godfather, who's also one of my best friends, Dr. Uh, Spencer Miller, uh, he's an audiologist. And he gave me such a hard time about not taking care of my hearing because he, I, I guess my son was out mowing the grass next to me and he was wearing his ear protections, but I was just wearing earbuds to listen to music. And he would just got on me about not wearing hearing protection while mowing the grass. So I went out and bought a pair of uh, headphone or uh, hearing protection. And that is night and day difference. I can actually hear things when I'm done mowing the grass. I love hearing protection now. And that sounds so bad as an SLP that I didn't believe in hearing protection until about three years ago, four years ago. Oh, instead of the short term hearing after uh, getting done mowing for 30 minutes <laughs> now i will say this when we bought our son the nintendo switch for his birthday the salesman said oh and just so you know it comes with headphones he should be able to wear the headphones that way you you don't have to listen to it and i just looked at him and i was like no i'm not giving my five-year-old earbuds to listen to a video game and and ruin his hearing uh now you just like the nintendo music you want to be able to imagine what he's doing even if you can't see it that is true evidently that will probably get us banned from youtube or something that little humming sound no that was it that was that was the remix now just a thought yeah because i know you can set parental things on a lot of different games and devices can you limit the volume on them i don't know about on the switch i don't think so I think that should be uh, a tool they add on there. That should definitely be a tool. Yeah, but I don't know about you guys. My old Sony Walkman and my first generation iPod had like noise limiter and like you would do it and then you'd be like, I can't hear myself over walking across the bridge. So then you turned it off and then cranked it up as loud (laughs) as you could. So, I mean, I, you know, I think they need as hearing becomes more important. Also, the stuff that we use to protect our hearing becomes less uncool, I guess you could say, because, you know, you see drummers wearing hearing plugs now that you've never seen them wear before, and they look cool. And I think that's part of the thing as well. It's great to have a warning label saying that this is going to make you go deaf, but having something that people actually want to wear is just as important. I mean, the same thing happened with bike helmets and skiing Mm -hmm. helmets i remember Mm -hmm. going skiing in high school and nobody wore a helmet and by the time i lived in colorado you were the odd person out if you did not have a helmet on and people would put stickers and paint them and it became part of your ski outfit and your bike out now for kids they have mohawks and unicorn hair on them and all that stuff the kids are excited to have their bike helmet exactly we want to hear from you. Oh, sorry, Michael. I was just going to say that's a great comparison. It's uh, it's pretty much uh, just a matter of time until Apple makes a product that makes the hearing protection cool. So we're we're waiting on Apple to to make it trendy. And just like sure. those headphones, if I mean we get them for our kid, we could paint them a different color or put designs sure. or stickers on them. I'm on for it. I'm all, I'm all good with it. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and from there. You can email us speech science podcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call or text message 614-681-1798. Now, the big thing that we wanted to talk about today is our burnout. And before we do anything else, I want to play a quick 
clip of a video. What over 50% of healthcare professionals are experiencing, they call it burnout. It's exhaustion, low productivity, and a feeling of deep cynicism. What do you guys think? We're going to have the complete video from ZDog MD uh, in our show notes. What's your guys' initial thoughts on burnout and then what he calls uh, moral injury? So, so how does that video go after that? Like, what is his, uh, his stance on burnout? Oh, that he says that burnout is basically pushed by always making sure that we're trying to do the most and almost looking at our patients as dollar signs instead of the needs of our patients. So basically he's saying that it's not burnout. It's more what we call moral injury, where we as healthcare professionals are so engaged at trying to get the best care for our patients that we become almost discouraged or beaten down by the system because we can't spend two hours with our patient. We have to spend as little time as we can to get cleared by insurance before moving to the next patient. Mm -hmm. So he ties in productivity, mm -hmm. um, documentation, which could apply to for us to school settings as well of the high caseloads and for sure, like that learned helplessness, I think of that's what I compare it to is back to site class 101, right? Where mm -hmm. you, um, the example I always remember is where you study really hard for a test and you fail. You don't study and you fail. So what's the point of studying? Yeah, pretty much. Right? That's, that's learned helplessness. So I think what he's describing and what I often think of as burnout is when we get to that point professionally that we feel like I have such a big caseload, no matter what I do, I can't serve this population as I want to. Mm -hmm. And so he calls it moral injury, that it's not burnout. It's not just being worked too hard. It's that you're um, emotionally and then physically, because it's all tied together. He links it to almost similar to PTSD from soldiers returning, where a soldier doesn't want to go out and shoot somebody, but because they see it on the front lines and they come back, it has injured their moral center that they need to heal and he says it's similar to us in healthcare where we don't want to see people get hurt or injured or whatever that they're going through. But instead, we have to basically shut down and move on to the next person. Yeah, I think burnout is something that really most people feel within their jobs, within, within their careers. I think us as SLPs, we spend so much time with OTs, PTs, other special educators, we have our incredibly large network of SLPs on Facebook and social media that we're always, and, and typically when you get a group of strangers together with, with small commonalities, one of the best ways for them to do is to complain about things. Like when you're in grad school in your cohort, one of the best ways to get to know your classmates is to complain about your teachers and everyone can share in and crack jokes and you build that camaraderie. And that's I never did at OU. OU was awesome. <laughs> and that's definitely what happens on social media is a lot of the complaining and a lot of the uh, basically bashing of speech. And a lot, and a lot of it is warranted and, and a lot of it is those true people's experiences. But burnout is definitely a real thing. And I think it hits us so hard as SLPs is because within this field, as opposed to so many other jobs, we have to always be on. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's one of the best ways for me to describe it, is we always have to be on. It's almost like we're constant performers. 
every time a new student comes in, a new client comes in, you it's, it's almost like the curtains open and you're there on stage in front of an entire audience. And you, yep. have to, and you have to be a brand new person for that session based on that kid's interests, what gets them engaged, what gets them moving, tracking the goals, doing the paperwork aside. You have to be energized and on. And it's, uh, and it's tough. And it's, it's tough to keep up with that hour after hour, day after day, year after year. And that's why I feel like burnout is real. And it's so prevalent within the SLP field. Unfortunately, I, re- I think the term burnout just gets overused to an extent mm-hmm. because we get burned out of a lot of things. It's not just work. We get burned out of, you know, day-to-day activities too. And um, so it was interesting to me that in this video, which I know we link to, but that he changes that terminology, yeah. you know, he's using language, what we do <laughs> to, um, to describe it in a more intense manner. I'd love, I, I've been a subscriber to ZDog MD for the last two, three years, uh, mainly because he makes parody videos and I love parody videos and his parody videos all have something to do with medical field. But uh, Michael, you couldn't have been more right when you said that we're always on. I realized this early on when I did home health care, I walked into the end of a PT session and nothing against PTs, but the patient was doing their their reps and they were learning the count PT was able to have a conversation with me and the patient, not about the therapy because the patient was doing therapy and and the PT was at times saying, Oh, get your knee a little bit higher. They were doing a wonderful job. But I realized in that moment, how different our two jobs could be because I can't take a break from asking a WH question to a person with aphasia. I can't take a break when I'm working with a dementia patient and ask them what their kids, how their kids are doing because it is a therapy question. It's not like we're walking around the living room with the wheel, with uh, the walker doing that. Exactly. I think there's a lot of our SLP listeners out there that could really relate to, uh, to what Matt just said. And it's really, um, it's, it's, it's something we've all experienced and we've all been able to really cherish those moments when we're able to have a little bit of small talk with the client and uh, have a little bit of a parent interview or uh, just have a little bit of a small talk with the parent. Oh, Hey, how was your weekend? What's been going on? You know, those, those little moments of building rapport. One of the most, one of the most exciting things about getting a new client is you know before you start doing any speech goals, anything therapeutic, is you have to build that rapport. And that's one of the most refreshing, it's almost like a, like a deep breath and a break for us. Uh, you can have any desk job, any corporate job. You can be in marketing, in finance, in administration, graphic design, anything. There's days where you could get up out of your desk, out of your, away from your computer, yep. walk around, and take a breather. We don't always have that luxury. Uh, so we have to plan accordingly for that and kind of cherish those moments when you're not providing the therapy and you find you create your own individual plan of self-care of how am I going to take care of myself to ensure that I can keep up this pace of always having to be on. Have you guys, either one of you, been close to burnout or moral injury? Uh, I would say I'm still a little 
too new to the field. How long have uh, you been in the field, Mike? I graduated grad school in 2015. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, Michelle? Yes. You have burned out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I will say, I mean, I think there's, there's more to that story, but and there were, it was some circumstances oh, that I, um, but I, I switched jobs. Yeah. The job I had before this, I, this is an honest conversation and please do not call any weird hotline. I have already worked my way through this, but there would be days on my way to work that I was just hoping that I would get in a car crash so I didn't have to go into work. Like that is the, uh, the pinnacle of being burned out when you go, well, if this semi doesn't really signal and he hits me in the front end, I might get out of work for today and maybe tomorrow. But that's, I mean, it's real. What job, what job was that? Speech therapy. It was just another placement before. Yeah. This was about four years ago into my field. Yeah, and I was in a I was in a rough job as well where I just remember mm-hmm. I would I would drive I would take the longer route to get to work <laughs> just because it meant driving on a scenic road. Oh, <laughs> just to try to But, you know, I went to an ASHA training on burnout and literally the lady said what you need to do in the school system is at lunch turn out your lights, put on soft music and close your eyes for 20 minutes. That'll fight burnout. It and doesn't I, work. But it's all from, it's coming from a good place, right? It is. You want it to, is. Even the try this essential lavender oil. To I have you. retail therapy behind but me. That fights my burnout. There you go. But I think that it's, it's missing the bigger picture that can mm-hmm. help short term, that can help kind yeah. of recenter yourself. And if you get yourself into a routine, whether it's exercise or reading or detaching yourself completely from anything work or, or speech related, uh, spending time with family. I mean, we all have those things that kind of bring us back to where we want to be and we're ready to go back to doing And Michael, I hope you never have burnout. I honestly don't. I hope you never do. Honestly, I, I've almost taken the, the approach that it's almost inevitable. And I think if you kind of take that, that mental mindset that there's going to be those bad days, the days are going to come where I'm not going to enjoy what I'm doing and there's going to mm-hmm. be you know there's there's that constant roller coaster of life of the ups and the downs and there's going to be a string of days you know whether it be days weeks months where I'm going to feel really burnt out I think kind of mentally preparing myself for that uh, I think will kind of in a strange way prepare me greater for it yeah I didn't mine wasn't so much it was not just like one day I woke up. It was just like, man, I can't believe that they still do this here. I need to make a change. And then it was like, eventually it was, I got tired of trying to make the change. And I just started thinking about how to get out of there. And then eventually I found Fairfield where I'm at now. And I love it. But it was a rough go. I, I My wife thought I was going to quit the field after three years. Uh, or was worried that I was purposely going to try to crash my car to not have to go to work. And I was like, I'm not going to purposely crash the car, but if someone bumped it, I would totally use it to get out of work. And that like, that is a learned helplessness. That's, mm-hmm. that's depression. That's. Oh yeah. Of- I realize that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we need to, I don't know, look out for each other too. True. Yeah. Reach out it, to that coworker. If my CFY was 10 months instead of nine, 
I would have been burnt. I would have been burnt out. Like it was, it was, it was rough with the hours and sometimes it's your environment. Sometimes it's the placement, it's the environment. It's, it could even be the specific students and families that are just not the right fit for you. And, the, and that's, what's driving the burnout. And uh, just like we spoke about before in terms of scope of practice, sometimes a change of scenery, uh, you, you hear that a lot in, in sports when my players get traded from one team to another, oh, he just needed a change of scenery and he'll do better. But now really just applying it now to this is, uh, is sometimes a change of scenery can do wonders. And that ties right in with um, the Instagram commenter, right? Yes, oh, yeah. it does. Yes, it does. So on our Instagram page here, uh, we, posted, we posted a nice uh, post uh, called Don't Quit, which was for all you SLPs uh, experiencing burnout. And it was a little prelude to us discussing it this week. Uh, so we had a question here by the Instagram user Senuzi. And his question was, um, let me make sure I have the right one. He has to, he was, it, it's always great when our, when our, our listeners engage with us online. So it, it was, I love a, it. Such a nice thing. So he asked, what if school made speech pathology look so desirable up until your fourth year and then you considered quitting? So he's basically a, or he or she, I'm sorry, uh, he or she is still a student in grad school going through uh, some externship placements and the externship placements have not been a positive, positive experience so far. So for all you grad school SLPs out there and also you licensed SLPs out there, when you're in a bad environment, whether it be a job or an externship placement, and you're recognizing this is just not for me, this is not good at all, especially if you're so early in, your, in the stages of becoming an SLP, do you continue doing it? Do you stick it through, get your master's, do your CFY and stay? Or do you consider leaving the field altogether and starting fresh? Well, and I think I'll add as well for the licensed SLPs, especially if you're in grad school, right? If you're finishing this program, that there are a lot of speech pathologists who, just like we talked about earlier, don't necessarily work mm -hmm. directly in a traditional speech pathology setting. So we have a broad, broad spectrum of jobs that we can work as licensed SLPs. And then there's jobs that are related to our field that might be a good fit as well. Um, and that it's, it is never, I will say this now because it's never too late in your career, 10 years into a career, 20 years in a career, speech pathology has a lot of different niches that if you want to pursue a different area, it is possible. It's going to take some legwork, but it is possible. And that there's, hopefully, if there are a lot of things, you've been in school and speech pathology sounded so great, there must be some things about it that were really appealing. So we can try to find something connected with those. I'm going to say on the other side on it that like, you're so close to getting your CFY done. Get your CFY done mm -hmm. just so that you have it. But if the field's really not for you, don't stay in it. This field it is very draining. It is very, it can beat you down very quickly. And we just talked about that. But on the flip side, it can be so very rewarding. But if, if it doesn't feel like a good fit, you don't want to look back in 30 years and say, I hate speech therapy. I never should have done it. 
because this field can be, like I said, can be so rewarding from getting the, the kid that's locked in a, an eye gaze device to getting that adult back to work to getting an accent modification for a job placement. Those are all very rewarding. But those moments are one out of every five patients or one out of every 10. They are wonderful. The high is so high that it replaces any low that you could have been feeling. But to get to that high may take three months. It may take six months. It may take two years of working with a patient, but it's going to be worth it. But if you don't feel that that's what you want to do, there's no shame in not staying in the field. The field is very difficult. It, it We are literally working with students and patients at their lowest. And we, Michael, you hit on it before. We have to perform. We have to be on because our patients need us. And if you don't have that, it's hard to fake it. And our patients can see if we're not there in the moment with them. And it can be very scary and very sad having to tell a patient that you've been with for a year, hey, I think we're getting to the time where we have to change your diet or you're going to die. Or working with a student with a degenerative disease and you say, hey, you're an awesome kid, but let's look at getting you that AAC device now so that in your last couple years of life, you can still be that awesome kid. It's very tough. And you need a certain internal drive that if if it's not there, it's okay. It's okay. No one will tell you it's okay, but it's it's okay to find a different field if it doesn't fit for you. And I've worked with a ton of incredible SLPs. I, I've, I've worked in, in great networks, met some amazing SLPs that have revived me and made me feel great and increased my zest for the field in this career. And I have met other SLPs that have literally learned about this field by finding those Forbes list of 10 careers for the future. And oh, speech pathology is on there. I bet I could do that. And somehow they find themselves in grad school, and and all of a sudden, boom, you're in front of a you're in front of a client. You're in front of a mm-hmm. student, and that's not the way into this field. There's enough grad schools out there. They're popping up every year. New grad schools everywhere, graduating. 30, 40 brand new SLPs a semester. So there's there, there, there's enough out there. There's obviously areas that are dire for SLPs, but if you're not someone that, that pictured yourself becoming an elementary school teacher or working with geriatrics or truly doing something in this field besides finding ways to, 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 to be comfortable as an adult and find something you think you could do, you know, don't, don't learn about SLP through through a, a career list, a top 10 career list. This is, this is a field for people, you know, my entire life, I knew I wanted to work with kids. My mom worked with kids for years and years and years at a school. So it's, it, it's in my blood, it's in my DNA to work with people. I could never work in front of a computer all day or be in a cubicle or have your typical job. But it's this, like Matt said, this field is absolutely not for everyone. And, and that's okay. Yeah, and and thankfully, the vast majority of SLPs I've met are absolutely incredible people. 
amazing people that will do anything for their clients and work their asses off and just do an incredible, incredible job. And, and we, we are, we are absolutely blessed to be a part of this field when you really take a step back and look at it. And I'll, I'll add in too, if, especially for students, but also for people who are looking at maybe trying to switch areas in speech pathology, which can be a really big change, even though you're still a speech pathologist, if that's what you're looking at, um, because of how awesome the vast majority of any SLPs I've worked with, just like Mike has referenced, um, ask to shadow. I mean, I would love it if somebody, how many times have I had students or even other SLPs who just work in a different field come hang out, especially when I was at the school for the deaf and the blind, because that is such a narrow population to work with where we had SLPs come and just spend the day to see that part of speech pathology. And I think the vast majority of speech pathologists that you reach out to, no matter where you are in your field or in your student studies, if you said, can I come shadow you for a day, as long as that's okay with HIPAA mm -hmm. and all that other stuff, they're probably going to say yes. So check it out. You know, don't, don't feel like you're locked in just because you are finishing up that master's degree, because there are a lot of areas within speech and there are a lot of things related to speech if there are things in it that you like. Yeah. That was a very heavy topic, guys. Whew. I loved it. <laughs> oh, we want to hear from you. How are you battling burnout or moral injury? Or how have you done it? Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. You can email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Or give us a phone call, 614-681-1798. Or you can text that same number. Coming up after the break, Michelle, who did you speak to and why is it important? Hey, I spoke to Yvette Heider, another one of our ASHA candidates. And she is from Western Michigan University. And she was fantastic. I want to bring her back on the show. So I'm hoping that uh, we get a chance to talk to her down the road, whether she is in that ASHA position or not. So I hope that you all enjoy hearing about her and her research. And um, I think she enjoyed being on with us. Awesome. That'll be right next. You're listening to Speech Science. This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the self, GFTA and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new easy to use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for two years, six months old to those 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. That's pearsonclinical.com slash X-C-E-P-T-I-O-N-A-L. Michelle, I have the opportunity to sit down with Yvette Heider, Dr. Yvette Heider. She is an ASHA fellow and a professor of speech language and hearing sciences at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Her research and teaching focuses on the influences of culture on communication development and disorders with emphasis in the areas of pragmatic language and social communication with speakers of African-American English and with children with histories of maltreatment and prenatal alcohol exposure, as well as culturally responsive and globally sustainable practices. She's also recently published and co-authored a book 
on culturally responsive practices and writes about competencies needed for global engagement. And why we have her on the podcast is because she is also in the running for a position with ASHA. So hello, Yvette. Hi. Welcome to Speech Science. Thank you. Thrilled to have you. And thank you for making the time uh, to come join me tonight. Sure. Uh, you're recording, and I know this will probably go up in the next week or so, but we're c- recording on a Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. And um, first off, can you just, what, what ASHA position are you in the running for, and, and why? I am running for vice president for planning, okay. and um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to run for this position. As you know, strategic planning is sort of the backbone to any organization, and it's the position that um, where you can work with others to set priorities, to give direction um, in the way that the direction to the organization, Um, you're guiding that direction, Um, and it also includes in this position is planning, but also a liaison to the Multicultural Issues Board and to the International Issues Board. And I feel I have very strong skills in all three of those areas. Um, You know, I've had 20 years of leadership and planning and national and international organizations. For example, I was chair of the Child Language Committee and the International Association for Logopedics and Phoniatrics. Um, I was a coordinator for 617 of ASHA, which is the Global Issues and Communication Disorders, um, Communication Sciences and Disorders. And then, That's always um, a mouthful, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Every title. Yes, and then, communication um, science disorders, whatever we have. I have a strong record of multicultural work, a strong record of international work. Um, I've co-chaired university steering committees on diversity and inclusion. I chaired college, a college committee on diversity and inclusion. You mentioned the book, and I, I co-teach a study abroad in Senegal. So I have a lot of strengths um, to bring to this position, and I think um, it fits me well, and I'm really excited to have an opportunity to help set standards and promote evidence-based and interprofessional culturally responsive and globally sustainable practice in our field. What would you say, I know you kind of touched on what you hope to accomplish, but um, what would you say is the number one issue right now for speech pathologists and, and, and also audiologists? Yeah, um, I actually think there's kind of three, but my, my top, if I had to hone it into one. Mm-hmm. It just seems like we need to, ASHA has done a lot to prepare the membership for providing services across cultures. And, you know, we've done a lot, but I think it's such so imperative now that we are able to engage in effective practice with this ever-changing society that we're living in. So there's, we're increasingly interconnected. Um, the world is more complex, and there are lots of ASHA members and students who are becoming speech-language pathologists and audiologists and speech scientists and language scientists who want to go abroad and provide services. There are ASHA members who's already living abroad, um, and there's increasingly um, movement of people from outside of the U.S. into the U.S., 
and vice versa. And wherever we find ourselves as practitioners, we need to be prepared to provide effective and sustainable services. And I think for me, it just seems like that's one of the biggest issues mm-hmm. that we're how, facing is being prepared for that. Um, I guess, how do we measure, how do we make sure that it is effective and is sustainable? Yeah, um, well, I think we're beginning to have these conversations about competencies in the membership, mm-hmm. right? And we're, we all are very, there's a um, there's already ethics, you know, a body of ethics that, that guide our practice. There are social, I mean, um, language learning theories or theories that guide the, the practice as a speech language pathologist. But we're just beginning to start having this conversation and start writing and researching and publishing about the types of, you need a little different information. You can't just focus on content. You also have to focus on how you develop relationships. How do you develop partnerships when you are working in, you know, cross-culturally and also outside of the country in which you are most familiar. So we're beginning to see some of these um, ideas trickle into the literature, which I think we just need to do more of that. It needs to be in classrooms. I also think, and this may not be the most popular position, but I think it needs to be in our standards of practice, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Cultural, cultural competence is, and I'm putting competence in air quotes because I prefer cultural responsive practice, that term, but um, that is in our standards of practice. But how to engage internationally or in a global context in a way that you're developing a partnership and you're being reciprocal, that is not in our standards of practice yet. Hmm. Now, that almost made me think because um, I know one topic that's come up with ASHA recently, and and we've brought it up on the podcast uh, a little bit about um, me. I have licenses or I've held licenses in four different states now because we're we're a military family. And I know there's the discussion of that compact that ASHA is working towards to hopefully like other professions like nursing and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what else who have some cross state lines licensures. Um, Is that applicable? Is that something that we can, you know, I know other countries have different licensures as well. And you're Mm -hmm. worked in another country. You said you take students to Senegal, but I'm not sure exactly the question I'm going for, but I'm curious how that can relate. Like what is Ash's role in Um, in that, just in our own country, but then also abroad? Well, I think that currently what ASHA is involved in, I hope I have the name of this, um, they We can look it up later and add it to the show notes. ...with um, different countries. And so they've, ASHA has been invited to different countries in different regions in order to, of the world, to, to help buoy, maybe that's the right word there, but to help kind of support the the types of services that people who are already working in those countries would like to see. And so I know that there's going, so ASHA is doing some conferences, collaborative conferences in these different regions of the world. Um, so that's one thing that ASHA is already doing. Um, I'm not so sure there could be like a, a a license that is the same, 
because the resources and the manpower is different. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take, for example, if you're working in um, Senegal, um, my understanding from interviewing a couple of speech-language pathologists there, that there are about five speech-language pathologists in the city, I mean, in Senegal, but concentrated in the primary city, which is Dakar. When you think about going out into the rural areas, it's um, the ser- there's not much services uh, being provided there because it's just difficult to get to. There aren't people there. And so we really need to think about how practice looks different. It's not going to look like it does in the United States, and it shouldn't. The license isn't going to be, you know, there may not even be licensure. Mm-hmm. It may be pro- providing support to community members to be able to implement services or to do assessments or, you know, so it's going to look, we need to have a flexible mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we're, as we, as we continue in this direction and there's no, we have no option, right? Because this is the way the world is happening. Mm-hmm. We're just increasingly interconnected and um, so we have to have increasingly mental flexibility in order to, th- to, you know, think outside of the box of how services might look. And it's really not up to us, right, if we're working in other countries. Other countries know what they need, and they know who they need, and they know exactly what they need. Um, what they, what oft, often is not available are the resources to put into place what they know they need. And so as we are working internationally, we really need to join people where they are, be invited, you know, to, to um, be invited to, to partner with them. And then we're doing what they know that they need. We're helping them. I like how you put that being invited to partner with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you did touch on you said when I asked you the number one issue, but you mentioned that there's two others. You have your top yeah. three. So yeah, the couple of others that I was thinking of is that um, we need to continue to increase the diversity of the membership, right? So we have um, I pulled up some numbers. We have about eight. There's about 101, 191 plus. Um, speech language pathologists, audiologists, speech language hearing scientists, right, that are certified through ASHA. Only about 8% are members of a racialized group, and I, you know, who would consider themselves people of color. Okay. There's um, uh, 5% are considered, would identify as Latinx, hmm. right? So Latinx or Hispanic. Um, there are about 530 international affiliates, so people who um, are ASHA members, who are, but who are working outside of the um, country. And then we also have about 5%, or maybe a little bit under 5%, who are male. And so, you know, those numbers are pretty small when you could think about the number of people in the in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, how many males are there in the United States? I don't have that number right at the top of my hand, but I do know a lot more than the five percent, right? Right. A lot more than five percent. <laughs> and then there's twenty seven, twenty eight percent of the US population are um 
um, people of color. So, but they're 8% of ASHA. And so we, it's important to build the skills in the professionals that we have to be able to work cross-culturally and internationally. But I think it's also important to um, grow the profession, continue to incorporate more and more diversity in the people who are providing those services because we're working everywhere, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that you you made me think of um, the last two years before we, my family, we recently moved to Kentucky, but um, I was in El Paso, Texas, right on the border of Mexico, mm-hmm. and my coworkers, all except for a couple, were fluently bilingual because they were native Spanish speakers and Mexican-American themselves, and the vast majority of our patients also had Spanish in the home, if not the primary exactly. language, their L1. So. Um, it definitely forced me to brush up on my Spanish skills, but also kind of opened a window into another part of speech pathology where you really have to think about beyond English, you know, standard Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you know how many ASHA members um, identify as bilingual? I don't. How many? 6%. 6%. Wow. 6%. Yeah. Those are 19, eight, nine, 2018 figures. Wow. Yeah. I know. So. And I'm thinking that the clinic I worked at, all of them were. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. it's very regional, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I, I do have hope because more and more, I teach at Western, so in Kalamazoo. And so you have different cohorts of students coming through and more and more students are bilingual or have some facility in another language okay you know every year there's more and more yeah which is promising i think definitely yeah and my you know my second language is um, american sign language from working with oh wonderful part of hearing Uh uh, which is its own culture (laughs) and communication right but um that's a definitely a you know our country is only getting more more diverse and more cross-cultural generations so right yeah well I am working on fluency in Spanish and French I use when I'm traveling in West Africa and um so it's really excuse me it's it's really challenging to get up to be in a place where you feel like you're fluent Mm -hmm. um particularly when I'm in English so often you know, yeah. at home, I, I, I speak Spanish with my husband, but at, you know, most of the day I'm talking and thinking and reading in English. So it's, yeah. it's just, I know it's a challenge. That, the reading part was a challenge too when I worked with students whose first language was ASL because there's no written mm-hmm. form to ASL. So mm-hmm. they have to really be become bilingual themselves because to read and write they have to write in English right Mm -hmm. so always a challenge (laughs) so um I am fascinated by your research just based on the bio and I started clicking through some different things um is there anything else topics wise for the ASHA position that you wanted to touch on uh before I I um oh before you go into that the other the the, the other thing, I think, just one other critical mm-hmm. issue, I think that we should be 
but there's kind of two, but so one, you, just quickly. I, I want to hear both. So <laughs> okay. We have so one, one is thinking about interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. That's a big thing um, that we've been talking about in the American Speech Language Hearing Association. It's a medical um, model, but we have adapted that language. And we've already talked, we've already, we've always been, not maybe not always, but for a very long time, focused on collaboration across disciplines. And, um, but, but one of the things when you are preparing pre-service speech language pathologists and audiologists, the, the curriculum, curricula that we have and the structure of the institutions make it very difficult for IPE and IPP activities to occur. Um, and, you know, I think it would take a complete revamping of the way we think about offering education to, um, you know, to, to model the, an ideal um, educational experience, you know, for individuals who are learning to work across disciplines. And, um, and that, you know, that takes a long time and it will be very difficult to do. But I see that as there's this, this interest and this push for us to be more engaged in interprofessional education, interprofessional practice, but we are existing in institutions and structures that make that really difficult. Um, and in some places, even in my department, it, it still happens, but it, it happens at the stress of trying to put that on top of, you know, or within a structure that's, it doesn't work well within. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth thing I think is important is thinking about how we continue to reach populations that have minimal means for paying for services. And um, of course, if you are a child and you're in the school system in the United States, there's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, which requires you to have services and free appropriate um, public education. But if you're outside of that age range, if you're not in school, um, are there, I mean, how do we, is there a pro bono mechanism that we can offer you know, individuals who don't have the means to, or the insurance to pay for services, which increases accessibility, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think are, um, very often, myself included, that ASHA members, we, we miss that elections are even going on and that we can, mm. you know, take a role in, in what ASHA is doing and have a voice somehow. Right. Um, and that might be through the candidate that, you know, we're supporting, but um, I guess, what would you want to tell members about this election and about uh, what ASHA is doing or could be doing? Well, I think it's, you know, there's a very small number and I don't have that number right at my fingertips of people who actually vote. And it's just so important because the people that the membership is voting are are voting for are those people who are helping to shape, for example, in this position, helping to shape the next steps or the next few years of ASHA's direction. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, 
really important for your voice to be heard through the candidates that you select. And I think, you know, of the all three of us are very well equipped for that position. And there are some similarities and there are some differences in terms of our focus, I believe. And, um, and I just think that the um, ASHA membership needs to be able to weigh all the options and determine, you know, which direction they, that they agree that the organization should go in and vote for that person. And forgive me, I, I feel like maybe I should know this, but how long is the position elected for? It's three years. It is three years. Okay. Yeah. That I couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, all right. Well, the next part is I really wanted to touch on get to know the candidate and who you are and your specialization and um, why, why did you become an SLP? We can start there. <laughs> Well, it's sort of a long story, but I'll try to make it fast. Okay. I was um, in junior high school, and they had a career day. And as a child, I was always this person who I collected. There was these little word puzzles in the newspaper, so I would always collect those word games. I did crossword puzzles. I did words. I was always fascinated. My sisters and I made up a language. You know, we walked through Hughes and Hatcher with my parents making speaking this pretend language and thinking that people would think that we actually were speaking another language so i was always very curious about language and then so when i went to the library um in my junior high school for this career they they had this like little file um three by five card file and the librarian asked me what i liked and so i told her about puzzles and word games and things like that and she said well read this card and it was the card about speech language pathology and i think at the time it was just called speech pathology and um this would have been in the late 60s early 70s and so um they I read about it and I was like, ah, this is what I want to do. Um, I went home and told my parents. How old were you then again? I was in junior high school. So I think I was probably in the fifth grade. Wow, I love what it. What is that like? I don't know, I can't remember what age it was, but I'm pretty sure it was in the fifth, I was at the beginning of junior high. Mm -hmm. And um, I went home and told my parents and they, um, had the my parents are really amazing they had the um forethought of getting me involved with a speech language pathologist so i candy striped and it must have been over the summer at a hospital that my oh. aunt worked at and with the host candy stripe uniform and everything <laughs> um and my job i was working in a rehab center department that has speech language pathology, audiology, occupational therapy, physical therapy. And I was assigned to the speech language pathologist. And so my job was to select the children's book and read to a little boy who was in a coma after a, a car accident. Every day I went, I picked out a book in the reading center and I went go in there and read to him. And one day I walked in and they were running around, where is Yvette? Where is Yvette? Where is she? And, you know, my heart was beating. I was like, what did I do? You know, that I, I thought something, that I did something wrong. They said, no, 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 come in here. And the little boy had 
awaken. Wow. But he wasn't recognizing. He was being afraid of other people. And so they asked me to say something to him. And he said, Mama, he recognized my voice. Wow. Because I was reading to him. And that was it. I knew from that moment that this was my calling. This is what I was here to do. Wow. I can't, you know, I think a lot of SLPs that I meet don't have that moment so young. That's pretty beautiful. I, I feel really, yeah, it feels really good to have that. I mean, it's just, it was very powerful at yeah. the time. And the field has, you know, uh, changed a lot. And, but I've, the other beautiful thing, as you know, about being a speech language pathologist is that you can change settings and they're so different, right? So it's almost like learning a new job every time you change, because working in a hospital is very different than working in a school, even though you have skills that transfer, but you're learning a new system. And so that it keeps it fresh and exciting. Absolutely. Your title's the same, but your environment is completely different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything else about you? Family, hobbies? Um, obviously your research interests, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what's going on with that currently. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of my research, I'll talk about the hobbies in a, in a okay. little bit, but I'll talk first about the research interests. Um, I'm currently working on, well, it's already developed. I have developed a, um, assessment measure that looks at, uh, um, social communication and pragmatic language. And we're piloting or collecting some data in Greece and Brazil. We're starting data collection in Cyprus um, and in the U.S. Um, and this is, and I'm collecting it in the Children's Trauma Assessment Center where I work or supervise students. And so it's very exciting. We have enough data from Greece to start analyzing that data and testing if the items on the instrument are working and working well. It has several different components. Wow. Um, there's a parent checklist, a teacher checklist, a child self-checklist for children who are eight and older. Um, there is a classroom observation form that the speech-language pathologist would use. And so the, the parent and ch uh, teacher checklists are really like those tier one, if you think about response to intervention. So it's that tier one mass screening that can be given to every child. And then the speech-language pathologist classroom observation form would be used by the speech-language pathologist to observe this child in real-life settings. It could be a classroom, it could be home, it could be on the playground, wherever this child is in, you know, engaging with others to determine whether or not there are social communication or, or um, pragmatic language concerns. Hmm. And you mentioned uh, your your place of work, the Children's Trauma Assessment, Assessment Center. Assessment Center. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that is. Yes, yeah, so this is a transdisciplinary assessment center. There um, that was started night. We just celebrated our nineteenth year. Happy birthday! That <laughs> <laughs> was in in February, and so um, the director is a social worker, a professor named. Um, Jim Henry, and there's um, occupational therapy involved, speech language pathology, a pediatrician, um, um, 
sometimes we have students who are nurses and sometimes we have students who are counselors um, or, you know, learning to be um, psychologists. Um, uh, and so we really are engaged in transdisciplinary work, but we primarily provide comprehensive assessments to children with histories of maltreatment and prenatal alcohol exposure. And um, it's really difficult work. And because when you think it can't get any worse, somehow a child walks through with a history that is worse than the story you couldn't even imagine. Um, but then, you know, the child walks in and they, he's, he or she is just a child, right? They are still playful and laughing. And um, so, you know, we really work on just trying to hold their stories while also providing a comprehensive assessment that helps them get the support and the resources that they need to be successful. Um, and we primarily do assessment, but not only assessment. There are social workers who have training and licenses in providing certain trauma-informed or trauma-based interventions. And um, so we have an opportunity to do that. Um, I've been working on some thinking and, and writing, um, although it's not published yet, about trauma-based intervention from the perspective of speech-language pathologist. Um, with this population, there's also a need for audiological service because um, children who have exposure to alcohol there, there is a connection between um, um, uh, middle ear uh, difficulties and hmm. children with that, those histories. So um, it's very important, very difficult work, but very important work. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else, really. So mm -hmm. I supervise students. All of us, all of the faculty members have students that, are placed there for practicum. Um, and then the Children's Trauma Assessment Center also employs um, counselors or social workers to do some of the, they're there like all the time, writing reports and getting background information on children and preparing files. So it's really, um, it's really a wonderful place. Wow, and how, how long have you been in that facility? Um, that I was one of the founding member, founding organizers of the Children's so Trauma Assessment Center. 19 years, hey. Yeah, so that's so 19 years. There's, there was five of us. And Jim, it was Jim Henry, Connie Blackpond. Connie Blackpond is a um, social worker and counselor. And they were actually working in the field um, and, note, and realized that there was this disconnect between, between children who were in um, DHS services, you know, in the welfare system, there was this disconnect between the kinds of services that they were getting and their what they needed. And it was very disjointed. And they had this dream of having this cohesive clinic um, that would provide assessments, a comprehensive assessment to for this population so that, you know, going into care, out-of-home placements or, um, or children that have these histories 
would have some comprehensive information about what they needed to support their development. Mm -hmm. And um, they had the foresight to invite other disciplines. So I was invited to the table. This is when they were planning as a speech language pathologist. Dr. Ben Atchison was invited as an occupational therapist. And Dr. Mark Sloan, who's a pediatrician, um, was invited. And so we all kind of sat around and we envisioned like how we wanted this clinic to look and, and we really wanted it to be transdisciplinary and not interdisciplinary where you had, or multidisciplinary where you had like this connection between the disciplines. And so we wanted it to be transdisciplinary, we dreamed about it. Um, and we, you know how you, when you first open up the doors, you have this trepidation, is anybody gonna show up, you know? But we had done a field, you know, a small field study um, to get a sense of if we built this center, would there be interest? And there was overwhelming interest, but you know how you're not quite sure people are going to follow through. Um, well, 19 years later, we still have, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad how many people there are that need the services that are in the um, DHS services system that are in out-of-home placements. Um, but we're glad we can provide this kind of service to that population. But it shows how much of that need is there. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And uh, anything about yourself, hobbies, interests, including speech, yeah. of course. But well, well, of course. You know, I still do crossword puzzles, and I still work games, and they still fascinate me. Languages, um, and uh, but I also am a violinist. I have played violin oh. since I was nine years of age. I have um, terrible performance anxiety, so if I'm playing in my own living room. That's great. If I'm playing for an audience, I'm like really, it really stresses me out. Um, but I love it. I'm in love with the violin, and um, I'm absolutely sure that I will be playing till the day I die. I also play piano, but not as often as I do the violin. I um, crochet, and my main crochet projects are afghans like big bit spreads wow yeah yeah mm -hmm. so um i actually um had connected with a woman who's an incredibly talented crochet um artist i would say mm -hmm. because uh, at a craft fair in el paso texas and i bought all our nieces and nephews uh, matching characters that she oh. to match these books um including i don't know if you've heard of the story the gruffalo it's a really funny little story about I haven't, but I'm gonna write down their name. Yeah. And she created once you look it up you'll see, but it's this monster with this hodgepodge of descriptions and a purple wart on his nose and that kind of thing. And she made one. <laughs> she crocheted a gruffalo for me for the book. <laughs> That's great. Um and I guess the last thing is that as I go into my get into my headed toward my sixties, I'm rather close there. Um, I have started back running. I was always a runner and as a younger woman, but I thought that this, that hobby could take me into my older age and it feels good. So I'm, I'm doing that and entering races and having fun. Yeah. Derry, uh, signed up for any races currently? 
Um, I am signed up for 10K at the um, Borges Run for the health of it here in Kalamazoo. Nice. My, one of my sisters and I, we kind of, that's what we do together. We kind of travel around and run in these races. Hey, it's an excuse yeah. to travel too. Right. Yeah. So I've only been to Kalamazoo once, but I hear wonderful things. It was back in college for a volleyball tournament. Oh, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and just on our podcast recording the other night, you know how the Google Doodle, when you go to mm -hmm. Google, they'll celebrate different anniversaries. Um, on Monday was the gentleman who created the tactile tiles for the blind, yep. right? The I saw that. And is right. it Western Michigan? I believe you guys have a big orientation mobility. Yes, right? absolutely. We yes. do. And um, that's in the same college that we are in. Oh, really? Because really. I, I, I mentioned working with the deaf, but I worked at the Colorado School for the Deaf and the Blind, and that's where... I mean, I learned so much from the O&Ms and I was telling Matt and Mike, our co-hosts, that I want to bring a O&M on for an interview because they, they work on a lot of, especially those language concepts mm -hmm. um, that we work on. So. Yeah. So the blindness and low vision uh, department is in College of Health and Human Services. And then there is a, um, I think up the street and across the street is another is a school, but I think they work closely together, gotcha. the department in that, that school. So yes, it's a... I know the Colorado here. School for the Blind had a couple staff members who graduated from Western Michigan. Oh, okay. So. Great. Wonderful. So the name is out there for <laughs> many different things, I'm sure. Is there anything that I haven't touched on that you would like to share? Mm -hmm. Especially relating to your run for the ASHA position, of course. Right. I think, I think, um, I think in terms of some things I'd like to accomplish is to, you know, in collaboration with other board members, is to um, not only advance ASHA's strategic objectives, which would, for the vice president of planning, um, I think would focus on objective six, which is increasing diversities of the membership. Seven would be incre um, um, international, yeah, international engagement. And then eight is cultural competency or responsiveness. Um, I'd like to increase the diversity of the work toward with other board members to increase the diversity of the membership. Um, and then increased student involvement. I don't think I mentioned that before, but in decision-making. So the kind of like growing your own um, population of future leaders in the field. Mm -hmm. And you being a professor, you work with, with the new, students, the soon-to-be SLPs. Right. Day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Matt had a really good question that reminded okay. me. He asked one of the folks who came on, um, for a position, he said, okay, let's say tomorrow you are suddenly in charge of all of ASHA, right? <laughs> what is the first thing you would do? <laughs> well, for me, I would, I would put in to um, the standards some global competencies. Okay. That's what I would do. I like it. There yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Step one. laughs> um, well, I 
have really enjoyed speaking with you. And thank um, you. I think we would love to have you back on just for your expertise and experience too, to hear more about what you're doing research-wise. So as thank that you. study progressives, maybe we can bring you back on the show. Sure. That sounds fine. Sounds that great. Great. And, um, you know, we'll keep encouraging the members to, to find out about all the candidates and make sure. And to vote. vote right? That's right. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much. It's 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 been a joy, and hopefully, maybe in some point we can meet in person and not just over a screen. Well, I hope so. Maybe at the next Asha, huh? Yeah, we're hoping to. Um, Matt and Mike and I are hoping to all three be there. So oh, wonderful! Okay, maybe great. do a live recording as well. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. I haven't been able to go since Asha Denver, so it's been a little way, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I will. Thank stop. you, Michelle. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hot, joined as always by Michael McLeod. What's up? And Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. I always have to be on edge a little bit. I don't know who you're going to say first. And that's why I do it. Actually, what it is is that uh, a little behind the scenes here. What we do is we record on Zoom. And on Zoom, uh, your guys' pictures sometimes change position. So that's the order that I introduce you guys in from top to bottom. All right. So right now it goes Michael, me, Michelle. But some days it's Michelle, Michael, me. It's Zoom is weird. But we like it. We use it. Yes, we do. Uh, So coming up on April 15th, I'm just kind of forward selling real quick. ASHA elections open up on the 16th. So on the 15th, we're going to drop our ASHA elections special. And what that is, is we're going to talk a little bit about everyone who's running for different positions. And also we're going to rerun all three VP of planning uh, interviews in their entirety uh, as kind of like a wonderful way to kick off uh, ASHA elections. So that's going to come uh, the week of April 15th. And that may be a Facebook live Uh, opportunity where we talk about individual candidates uh, as a group. So I'm kind of excited for that. That'd be awesome. I think that'd be very helpful for our listeners too. I'm stealing your idea, Michael, where you wanted us to do that last year. And I forgot that there was elections happening. Nice. (laughs) Now we're helping a lot of other SLPs know that it's happening. See, April 15th, we'll have the link down below. Uh, Guys, it's almost summertime and I'm sorry, it's almost spring break and then summertime, which means vacations. Uh, have you guys, either one of you been to Sesame Place? As a kid, yeah. That's over Did you here. really? As a kid, yeah. That's well, over in right my... Near him. That's in my neck of the woods in the Northeast. Okay, it's right so they near say, Philly, right? Yes, it is. Yep. So they say it's the first theme park in the world to be designated as a certified autism center uh they receive the staff members receive training in sensory awareness motor skills autism overview social skills communication i want to take my kids here you've been how awesome is it and then can you look back on it as an slp and and see how it's autism center how it's an autism center yeah i think some of that's new i was designated as a certified is it yeah Yeah. oh yeah oh yeah that's all new now Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I think the Philadelphia Zoo is also an autism center as well. Is it really? I believe so. I think it's been so certified. So, speech as, science as... road trip to Philly to Mike. That's right. We can, get... we can all sit in the room together and record. 
Well, it's it's awesome. I love being able to go to a movie and then see like a sensory awareness movie time being offered or it's something like this. I just I, I love this whole idea. It's all about inclusion and, and it's awesome. I really do love it. Exactly. And they mentioned having, like you said, sensory spaces or quieter room areas. It's not just kiddos with autism that will benefit from that. There's any kid could benefit from that if needed, whether it's a meltdown or um, tired or just vacation can be exhausting mm-hmm. at times. Parents can benefit from that. And this is true special needs advocacy. If you're not in our field or you are not directly related to someone with special needs, this is how you're most likely going to be educated about this stuff. You're going, you're going to see signs for an autism-friendly movie showing or mm-hmm. signs at the zoo or signs at Sesame Street for autism-friendly. And that's when you're going to recognize, oh, okay, so that's what, that's what it's all about. This is, this is a good thing. And that's how information is going to be spread. So this is a very positive thing that word is getting out there. And it's all done through the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Education Standards. Uh, They have a link as well to CertifiedAutismCenter.com and some of the other CACs across the the country. It's the Nickelodeon Universe in Minnesota, Mall of America, Discovery Cove in Florida. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Dolphin Cove in Jamaica, Sesame Place, Colonial Quarters in St. Augustine. I'm just kind of flipping through a couple others. yeah, so it's kind of cool to, to, to see so many places trying to get trained and, and welcome our, our patients, our students, our, our children with autism. Way, like to go Ses- Way to go Sesame Street. Philly, Philly don't think it knows what it's doing. True. We get a bad rap sometimes. Uh, that's because Will Smith left there. That's true. It is. Oh, let's send this thing home. This has been a nice and long and in-depth and deep episode we'll start with you michelle you made it through the show with your sniffles i did i know my pile of tissues is over here still hey man i made it through three episodes where it sounded like i couldn't breathe through anything but my mouth so i get it uh what's coming up for you in this next week well actually i didn't get to tell you last minute i um went to a the IDA conference, the International Dyslexia Southern Region Conference in Louisville, just up the mm-hmm. road from me. It's only 40 minutes away. And I found out last minute last week on about Wednesday that this was going on. So I was able to go to one day of the conference on Friday and do some CEUs, meet some awesome people. Um, but it was actually, most of that day was a rights law training. And Pete Wright is um, a pretty well-known special education attorney who's worked on some uh, pretty big cases. And it was a good refresher on IDEA things for me, but also some case studies and um, met a lot of student advocates who I've met more across the table from me as a school SLP in IEP meetings and some professors and and people in related fields and a woman that I might try to bring on for an interview. I told her about the podcast, so we'll see. Woo, wait a... Way to sell speech science, Michelle. I love it. Michael, are you selling speech science or no? I'm always selling On Instagram, science. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I bring like a, like someone who's like an applicant comes in, like looking for like, a, I guess, interested in the clinic, like a, another SLP from the area, one of the questions I always ask is, so do you listen to speech science? Do you really? I always do. I just did it yesterday. 
they're going to create some like ACLU law about Michael asking about what your favorite podcast is. I was two seconds away from asking her for her phone and and subscribing <laughs> and putting think. five stars. Well, that's, well, when, that's when I used my self-directed talk and said, "Michael, that, that's that's inappropriate." <laughs> Way to do what you teach people. I like it. That's right. That's right. I was close um, to doing it though. I, I've invited some people to our Facebook page and then made them like it. So, you know, yeah. you can do that. They're always like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for me, I got nothing. Spring break starts on Monday of, of next week. I got to get through two more days or three more days of school-based therapy, get through a couple of IEPs, and then I am on vacation mode except for home health care. You're getting there, bro. Getting there. What I'm are you going to do to relax, Matt? Sleep till 7. I have a 5 and a 2-year-old. There's not much sleeping in our house after 7 a.m. Yeah, fair enough. A nice, oh, a nice change of scenery. I like it. That is true. We want you as a listener to tell us what you like, so head over to iTunes and make sure at the end of this episode you hit those five stars and give us a little bit of love. Uh, we appreciate it, and it helps us keep bringing you stuff that you want to hear also go to our website speech science podcast at or speech science podcast.com and then email us speech science podcast at gmail.com our opening and music real quick any of our school slps going on spring break hashtag ss pod and let us know what you're doing send us the beach pictures y'all if you're going to disney i'm jealous and i i will tell you what what to do and it's to go left always go left at the magic kingdom our intro music is please listen carefully by jazard's license are an attribution and share alike license our bump music is the spellbreaker by try tachyon it's licensed under an attribution license and that may be changing soon i just got an email from a wonderful husband of a listener who's creating us some new bump music and our closing music is the slow burn by kevin mcleod it's licensed under creative commons attribution License and the immortal words of Janice Wright always be a willow because the oak will crack under pressure. For Michael McLeod and Michelle Wintering, I'm Matt Hot saying so long, everybody. Nice work. I'm dancing to the invisible music. That was a good one. Ooh, that was a long one. That was a heavy. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.